You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2016. Today's episode is titled, The Practics of Work Starts with Being. Work is a ubiquitous assignment. It is a timeless universal reality required not only by scripture, but also to survive in the physical universe. Given a created universe, there is a creator without whom there would be nothing. The Creator therefore defined all the rules of existence, including the rules of work. Given that internal being drives external actions, the predicate to performing excellent work is a sound understanding of a person's being in Christ. Clearly, only those in Christ can have this understanding. Therefore, to build an efficient, productive organization, management must seek to develop the metaphysical awareness of each worker and help each worker grow in an understanding of their being in Christ. Workers who refuse to be trained in a biblical understanding of being probably do not know Christ and will therefore not be long-term effective, productive workers. These workers will be, at best, effective only for a short time. But workers whose hearts are progressively transformed into alignment with the will and ways of God will produce excellent work and will be pillars of stability and long-term growth for the organization. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Work Under the Lordship of Christ. Well, this morning we want to start the study of the book of James. Uh, we will look at um, James chapter 1, verse 1, and basically give you an introduction to the book. So let me uh, read this text to you, uh, James 1, verse 1, out of the New King James Version. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now let me just make a few comments about this. First of all, the, the word James here, it's a common name uh, in the first century. Uh, there are a number of people that this could be. Uh, there's probably some it couldn't be. For example, James, uh, the brother of John. Remember, James and John's father was Zebedee. They were fishermen. That James was the first martyr among the apostles. He was martyred early on. We don't know exactly when, but it's highly probable he was already martyred by the time this book is penned. There are other, other people that are recognized as James in the scripture. Um, but probably the most likely candidate and the candidate that the church has almost universally accepted as the author was James, the brother of Jesus. Some people call him James the lesser, but this is a, a, a man who grew up with Jesus, but apparently did not accept Christ as the Messiah and as the one whom God has sent to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament until after the resurrection. But interestingly, after the resurrection, at some point, he came to a saving knowledge of Christ and rose up in leadership in the early church and became an apostle in Jerusalem. And at least that's what we believe Galatians chapter 1 tells us. Galatians chapter 1 verse 19 seems to make uh, a case for that. So that we, I'm assuming that the book was written by James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, then you have the the phrase, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word bondservant here is a word that means slave. Uh, and you can see here on your uh, slide here, I've got the Greek text underneath here. And I, I, let me put the uh, mouse pointer on here so you can see. Um, this word here, doulos right here, is a common word for slave. 
that's uh, that's basically a, a reference to any kind of person that serves a master. So that would be a slave. So James was a slave, a slave of first God, referring apparently referring to God the Father, and secondly to the Lord Jesus Christ, which would suggest there was no sibling rivalry rivalry here between James and Jesus. The phrase Lord Jesus Christ is interesting. Uh, it's used about 89 times in the New Testament, uh, and sometimes people think that that was Jesus' full name, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that really wasn't his full name. Uh, Jesus was his name. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Uh, Lord is a reference to his, his title. That is, he is Lord. He is the ultimate master. He is the one in charge. And Christ is a reference to the Old Testament Messiah, the anointed one who would come and really solve the problem of sin and death in the world. So it's a full description of Christ, not just his name. Even though his name means Jehovah's salvation, it is a fuller description. He is indeed Savior and Lord. Now, the, the audience that he's writing to is a very in, interesting audience here. It's to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Uh, now, again, this is uh, what's interesting about this is, uh, to me, the, the, the Greek here, you can see here, uh, this word right here I'm highlighting uh, is a definite article. In English, the definite article is the. So we would translate uh, this, the 12 tribes. That's what that phrase means there. And then we have another definite article. And this is not something English would do. This is something that only Greek would do, which would stress the specificness. You use the definite article to stress something specifically. So it stresses the specificness of the ones he's talking about of these 12 tribes. That is those who are part of the dispersion. So it's the 12 tribes, the ones in the dispersion, diaspora. So that's a reference to those who were scattered at the end of the rule and reign of the kings of Israel, and they were scattered because the Israelites were disobedient. They were spiritual adulterers. They they denied God and they worshipped idols. So they, they were disobedient to the law, and God told them when he set up the law that if you do this, then I will disperse you. That will be your judgment. And not only that, in Deuteronomy, he says not only if you do it, he says you will do it. You will do it, I will disperse you, but then I will bring you back. So many might have read that as, well, he's going to bring them back and everything will be fine. No, he will bring them back and everything will not still not be fine. In fact, he brought them back about 400 years before Christ returned. So for about 400 years, 500 years there, there was really, in the nation of Israel, it was just nothing going on. It was just dead. Because these were times of preparation, times of quiet, when everything is being put in place for Christ to come and do the ultimate work of restoring that which was lost. Remember that one of the big themes of the Old Testament was the separation out to God, a people for himself. In fact, in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, it uses the word ecclesia, 
as a reference to Israel. They were God's ecclesia in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the word ecclesia is translated church in English, which is probably not a great translation because the word church actually comes from an English term that refers to a building. But we know in Scripture the word ecclesia never referred to a building. It referred to people called out to rule. It's a compound word from ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which is called. So it's to be called out with the specific intent to rule. And that's how it was used in the Greek language. You would have an ecclesia to solve problems, to administer justice, to deal with civil matters. So you could have an ecclesia for a lot of things. But it was not restricted to what we would call spiritual activities. It was any kind of activity you could have an ecclesia. So Christ used a very, very common term, ecclesia, to describe his work of building now the New Testament ecclesia. The Old Testament ecclesia had failed because it depended upon obedience of man. The New Testament ecclesia would not fail because it's dependent upon the obedience of Christ, which will be perfect. So Christ will build his church, and he is in the process of doing that. So James here, as he's writing to specifically to Jewish believers, people that are professing Christ, that are living outside of the nation of Israel, the, the actual geographical area of Israel, dispersed, dispersed because of their spiritual adultery, and now he, he is very specifically sending them an epistle to explain to them how to live now in light of Christ. All that they've ever known up to this point is how to live in light of the law, and that understanding had been perverted because of, of the religious leaders and their own agendas, as well as the people rebelling and rejecting God. And now with Christ, we have someone who's come and who's truly dealt with the issue of sin and death and provides a way for us now to be acceptable with God and now provides his power to live out that reality. So this is the audience that he's writing to. It's interesting he's not writing to a specific church in a specific area. He's writing to a broad area, to a broad group of people, but they are Jewish in nature. And it's important we recognize that because all these people had a profound understanding of the Old Testament. And that's going to be a very important part for them to be able to, to interpret what James is saying correctly. So then let's talk for a minute about this word greeting here at the end. Uh, this is a, an interesting word. Uh, it's a word, this word here. Uh, it means, it means a number of things. It means to, to be, uh, to be content, to be at peace, to be full of joy. It's describing a state of being. Uh, the way it's translated in English, it sounds like it's like hello, but it's really not hello. It's like be at peace, be full of joy, you know, rest in the reality of Christ in you, that kind of thing. So it's a mandate for a state of being. And that's one of the great themes of the book of James is how your state of being will drive your doing. Your being drives doing. Now, in our culture today, which is largely shaped by existentialism, existentialism assumes that doing defines being. Christianity says, no, doing doesn't define being. Being defines doing. We work from the inside out. 
what it, your heart, your mind, your emotions, whatever's going on there that's inside of you, that your being is expressed by now what you do. The existentialists tried to argue as they were trying to wrestle with how do we explain reality without God, which means we have to depend on man explaining everything in and of himself, they decided that man could self-define. And they came up with the idea of the Superman characters. Superman characters are a product of pagan philosophy built on humanism, which is all about us trying to self-define our existence. So the assumption of existentialism is that you can do whatever you want to do, and then that will define your being. So please understand that is not a biblical idea at all. And James is here very clearly going to tell us what it is to live as a person who is being in Christ, what that means and how that's expressed. Now, if you've read the book of James, you might say, wait a minute, I don't see that in the book. Well, you don't see it in the book because James doesn't spend a lot of time developing the concept because he he basically assumes that you know the Old Testament because the Old Testament Jews understood the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. Today, most of us don't know the Old Testament well at all, so we don't have the understanding they had to properly understand the book. So the book sounds different to us than it would to them. So one of the keys in understanding this book is you've got to get familiar with the Old Testament and with how the Old Testament is presented and how it presents Christ. Before I, I'm going to, I'm going to give you some thoughts on that in a minute, but first I want to talk a little bit about the purpose of the book and the style of the book. This book is called a homily by many theologians, and a homily means a book that is focused on practice. It's not so much focused on understanding the doctrine that's behind the practice, and there are, there's a clear, a doctrinal understanding behind these practices, but it's a focus on the practice of living under the Lordship of Christ versus living in the fallen state. So that's largely what's driving James. James assumes you, as a reader, you already understand the doctrine. You understand what's behind this. And so if you don't, it becomes very difficult now for you to understand what he's trying to say. So let's just talk a minute for a minute about what that, what some of these assumptions are that he makes. First and foremost, he understands you're a student of the Old Testament and a student of the meta narrative. You understand from the beginning, you know, what God is doing all the way through to the end. From Genesis to Revelation, you have an understanding. Now, granted, at the time that this epistle was written, which we believe was probably in the 40s AD, there was no New Testament. So what they had was the Old Testament. They had Genesis through Malachi. And what the New Testament, what it did is it came along with another set of glasses to give us a way to understand the Old Testament more clearly, more precisely, more accurately. So in many ways, the New Testament is um, is really another set of glasses for the Old. And Christianity is firmly rooted on the Old Testament. Now, many people have heartburn with that idea because they think, well, we have to obey the law. No, no, that's not a matter of obeying the law to be acceptable with God. You are made acceptable with God by virtue of the work of Christ. And in chapter 1, you're going to see James talk about the seed sown into you. God sows a seed in you. 
That is the word of truth. He puts that in you. Another way scripture says that is you are born again. The work of regeneration through the power of the Spirit. So James very clearly recognizes the work of Christ in drawing us to Christ and the work of transforming us first before we begin to live differently. Our being must be redefined because our natural being is fallen. So we need a redefined being, and only God can redefine that. The Old Testament story is all about man trying to redefine his being through obedience, and he never could do that. So now in the New Testament, we have God redefining our being through the work of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ on our behalf, and then the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. That all happens, and we do nothing to deserve it, nothing to make it happen. God does it sovereignly. And now we are called to live in light of that new being. So we have to understand the the meta narrative, the story from the beginning, you know, and all the way to the end. And the Jewish people had a profound sense of that. It may not have been 100% accurate because they didn't really understand the work of the Messiah as a suffering servant. They thought the Messiah was going to come to be king, which he is. But he's also a suffering servant. So they had missed that portion of the revelation in the Old Testament. So the New Testament lays it out and makes it more clear to them. So they had a profound understanding of that. Furthermore, they had a profound understanding of metaphysical awareness. They realized that what was going on in the tangible was just like the tip of the iceberg. Beneath the surface, there's a whole spiritual reality at work that's driving everything in the tangible. So they were very, very metaphysically aware. So let's consider some of the themes that we're going to find as we go through the book of James. And um, the overriding theme to me is he's contrasting here living under the lordship of Christ, that is living in truth versus living in error, living under false understanding of reality. So he talks about a lot of things, and I've certainly not tried to give you a comprehensive list here. I'm just trying to give you a a glimpse of the kinds of things we're going to talk about. And again, his focus in this homily is going to be on practice, and he assumes that we all understand the doctrine that you have to know to properly apply Christianity in your life. So the practice, you know, are stem from, first of all, you have to do based on a sound being. You cannot be a sound doer in life without a sound beer in life. Your being is totally defined by God through Christ. And now living in light of that, that being is what we're responsible to do. So you have the contrast between the sovereignty of God at work and the responsibility of man. That's a very real theme here. Then you have the theme of testing. What is the role of testing? Well, we have a we have a culture today, even in the Christian community, that does not believe testing is of the Lord. I sat down with a pastor about two years ago, and I was talking with him, and I asked him, what's your theology of testing? He just locked up. He looked at me, totally frozen, and he had no idea what to say. Finally, he said, I don't have one. I said, you don't have a theology of suffering? You don't have any understanding of what God is doing through suffering? He had none, none at all. That is what I found to be fairly common among people who profess Christ. They do not understand how God works through suffering and pain. So 
that's going to be a big theme here. James obviously saw among the Jewish people who had come to Christ, they didn't understand that very well. So he's going to talk about testing. He'll talk about wealth. He'll talk about what real wealth is, and he's going to talk about what temporal wealth is. And he's going to talk about how when you worship mammon, and he won't use those exact words, but you'll see the implications of it. When you worship the idol of mammon, it will lead you to wrong actions. And so he's going to point those out to us. Then he's going to talk about wisdom. Again, he's going to talk about wisdom from above versus wisdom from below, contrasting, again, what is true from what is false. He'll talk about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, of course, is the Old Testament way of understanding, you know, what it is to worship God, what that really means. And worship biblically really has two aspects to it. First part of worship is just the total, just being awestruck with who God is. Just be being overwhelmed with him. So overwhelmed you can do nothing but lay on your face before him. So that is, that's one aspect of worship. The second aspect of worship is now you are a servant to do his bidding. It's no longer your will and your ways. It's all about his will and his ways. It's not what's in it for you. It's what's in it for God. It's a total surrender to him, total death to self. So the fear of the Lord is, again, a pregnant Old Testament idea that expresses what real worship is. So he talks about that. He talks about what salvation really is and what it isn't. He contrasts faith and works. And it points out that faith and works are inseparable. You cannot have faith without works. If you have, if you say you have faith and you don't have works, you don't have works. You don't, you don't have faith. You real faith produces real works. False faith produces false works. And he's going to talk in that context also about the faith of demons. You may not have thought that demons had faith, but they do. And we'll contrast that against what true faith is. Talks about the power of the tongue. How the tongue is such a little member, and yet it's going to have great power to direct your life, the doing, the things you do in your life, and how your tongue has to be brought unto the submission of the Lordship of Christ. Talks about motives, how important it is to have the right motives. You can't speak the right prayer with the wrong motives and expect God to do it. God wants to do his will according to his ways. That's what he's after. Humility. Of course, you could argue that underneath the, the idea of agape love, the greatest, the greatest value is humility. Humility is about being low. The word humble means to be low. So it means to not exalt yourself, not put yourself forward. It means to be humble before God, to be low before God, to simply do his bidding. He talks about patience. Patience is all about trusting that God is always working good in the midst of every circumstance, so I can wait patiently for him to work out whatever he wants to work out. He talks about healing. Healing, both physical healing, spiritual healing. He talks about prayer, and it it points out what God really looking for is the prayer of righteous people. That has lots of implications on it. And he talks about the work of discipleship. The importance, or excuse me, talks about work in general, specifically discerning the will of God for whatever work you do. And finally, he talks about the eternal importance of discipleship. The very end of the book is very interesting. The last two verses of the book to me are fascinating. I've wrestled with that and spent some time looking at that 
And what I've seen, I think I've seen now, is this: these two verses could be a key to unlock the book. Because it says, brethren, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. In other words, the way that you know someone truly is is in Christ as they're walking in the truth. And when you see somebody wander from a lifestyle of obedience to Christ, then what you see here is someone that's walking away from their set, their professed relationship. And if God has granted you the assignment now to challenge that peer person and help turn that person back to the truth, then you will have validated the reality of Christ in them through that process. And you will save them from eternal death and the, the consequences of their sin and save them from doing many sins. So this is a mandate for responsible Christian action, not that we have the power to do any of this. We can only do this when we do it in the power of Christ with the people we're assigned to serve. So I think this is a really pregnant phrase here that gives us a lot of wisdom about what James is trying to say here at the very end of the book. Finally, there are, there are in this book multiple imperatives. In the Greek language, uh, there is a mood called the imperative mood. The imperative mood is a, is basically a, a command. In English, we don't really have a mood, an imperative mood. We have active and passive moods. In the Greek language, you have active, you have passive, you have the imperative mood. The imperative mood specifically says it's a command. This is what I command you to do. So I've done some study on this, and I haven't completed my study on it, but so far I have found approximately 50, over 50. Let me say I've over 50 occurrences of the imperative mood in this book. So there are a bunch of commands on here. Now, one of the things that kind of help you think about this is remember the what we call the Great Commission which I think in some ways is a misnomer, but yet we will call it that because everybody does. There are two things that we are told to do. Well, first, we're told to go make disciples, and then he specifically tells you what he means by that. You go and you baptize those in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, which means I, I take that to mean you're recognizing the people that are showing signs that the Holy Spirit's regenerated them, and then you train them. You train them specifically to obey the commands of Christ. And obviously it's another one of those phrases. Jesus was talking to Jewish people who knew the Old Testament, who knew the doctrines of Scripture. And so he didn't bother to talk about training and doctrines because he knew they knew the doctrines. He's now functioning and focused on the practice. So what Christ did in the Great Commission, what James is doing here in the book of James, is focusing on the practice, practice of Christianity, assuming that you know the doctrine behind it. So as we go through here, as you see these imperatives, always ask yourself, what's the doctrine driving this imperative? You must understand. If you don't know what it is, we need to wrestle with it till we get understanding of that doctrine. Because James is not going to take the time to explain it. He's just going to assume you know it. And he's going to focus on giving you the imperative. So this is training in 
that's congruent with what we call the Great Commission. And uh, another, I guess another argument that you might say for James, the brother of Jesus, being the author, because he's writing like Jesus wrote in the Great Commission. Uh, there's an outline of the book I want to very quickly give you here that uh, I think will help you. Uh, in chapter 1, what we have after the salutation in verse 1, we have the joy of testing. It's an interesting way to put it, but that's exactly what the text will tell us, to rejoice in this. We talk, he talks about humility of the rich and the exaltation of the poor, the blessings of testing, and finally the call of sanctification as evidenced by obedience. In chapter 2, he continues the call toward living righteously, which in dealing with, first of all, with ontological equality. And again, that's not a term that he uses, but it's a concept that he expresses. He also talks about how the relationship between faith and works, or faith and actions. Chapter 3 is about, about living in integrity, making sure that your words and your actions are not disconnected, and the power of heavenly wisdom over worldly wisdom. Chapter 4 is largely about the workplace, motives, and about what it is to really, you know, the, the risk and the danger of being a spiritual adulterer, which that would have been very pregnant with meaning to the Jewish ears. To us, we don't get it as much, but they would have got that immediately, connected that with the sin of Israel. And then he talks about humility, walking in humility, living in humility, and how to express humility in strategic planning. Very, very insightful text there for business. In chapter 5, warnings against stewardship errors. Warnings against impatience and grumbling and swearing and admonition regarding suffering and prayer and sin and transparency. And finally, the conclusion of the book that basically says we are our brother's keepers. We are challenged to, to, to when we see somebody wandering astray from a true walk with Christ, if we have a call to interject ourselves into that person's life, we must prayerfully do that, seeking to restore them to a faithful walk with God. So that's the general outline of the book, and uh, we'll try to go through this slow enough so we can really absorb the truth that James has here. Now let me just close with an application here. I think this book is all about helping us position ourselves to find and fulfill the purpose of God for our lives. It requires metaphysical awareness of our position in Christ, our being, and then a metaphysical awareness of how our being is expressed in our doing. And we must always look at our doing and ask, is it congruent with the Lordship of Christ? If it is not congruent with the Lordship of Christ, it is out of order. And we need correction. And we need to be correctable. And so this is really about giving us the tools, the understanding, to be able to learn to walk in the reality of the Lordship of Christ in obedience to the will and ways of God, to die to self, to be true servants of Christ. This is the way forward. This is what, what it is to live an intentional, strategic life before Christ, is to live as a true servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. May he give us grace to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen. <music>